family for being involved in our worship today. It's just uh, great to see you here. Thank you. Um, we, we, want to, we want to become more and more of an intergenerational church right across the generations, and so it's just so lovely, Reese, to have you reading for us too. Thank you so much. I want to begin today uh, by telling you about a lady called Lema Roberta Gauhi. Um, and uh, as our PowerPoints will come up as I speak. Uh, Lamar was a very, very courageous lady. Um, she was the central figure of a documentary in 2008 called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. She's so courageous that she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011. Liberia, the country that she grew up in, was a nation that was racked by civil war between different dictators and warlords over many years. There was a complete breakdown in Liberia. Young boys were taken from their homes by the warlords and they were trained to kill and to beat women and children and do all sorts of terrible things. They were trained to do it. Lamar was stirred by the injustices of what was happening in her nation. She started to volunteer in a trauma healing program through St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Monrovia, which is the capital. One night, she had a dream. And she says that God told her clearly in her dream to, quote, gather the women and pray for peace. She realized she was being called to do something. And she said in her memoirs, if any changes were to be made in society, it had to be made by the mothers. So she acted. She gathered other mothers from churches and mosques and marketplaces, and she ha handed out flyers, and the women joined her. They handed out flyers, and the flyers said, we are tired. We are tired of our children being killed. We are tired of our families being abused. Women, wake up. You have a voice in the peace process. Eventually, they formed the women's peacemaking movement called the Women of Liberia, Mass Action for Peace. They dressed in white. It was a symbol of peace. And they held daily nonviolent demonstrations and prayer sit-ins in defiance of the orders of the tyrannical president, Charles Taylor. They prayed for an end to killing and cruelty. They prayed for a safe haven for their children and their land. They met together for two years. For two years they prayed. They prayed in football stadiums, on the streets, wherever they could gather, they would pray. They even had a sex strike. That caught the attention of the newspapers. They refused to have intimate relations with their husbands until something happened. Eventually, their presence and their protest and their prayer led to the end of the Civil War and the signing of an accord at Accra in a nearby um, country. That was in August, uh, August the 18th, 2003. And it began the healing process of that nation. You know, they had little power granted to them by their position in society, but they had something else. They had a call of God upon their lives and they had a seed that had been planted into a lady's heart that would call people together. They were granted great courage. 
and a spirit of justice and mercy. God's word, as we heard, did not return empty to Lamar. It achieved the purpose for which it had been sent. It worked like yeast, working through a bottle of water. It worked like yeast, working through bread, the dough of an unjust society in Liberia. It was like a mustard seed that was planted and grew eventually to become a great big tree. This led to the first free and fair elections in Liberia in 2005. And I'm very interested to note that Helen Clark, who is being um, asked to lead a process by the United Nations to look at the pandemic, the World Health Organization pandemic, is actually being accompanied by the first lady president of Liberia by her side. So today, um, we are looking at some of the teachings of Matthew. We've looked, um, just up on the screen there, we've looked um, a few weeks ago at the Manifesto of the Kingdom. That is, we know that as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Christ's followers are called to live out. We are called to live out the Sermon on the Mount. We are called to forgive. We are called to give. We're called to fast and pray for our enemies. Um, we're called to do good to those who hate us. Then over the four weeks following that, we looked at the mission of the kingdom. We looked at the 12 that were called out by Jesus to go and heal the sick, to cleanse the lepers, to cast out demons and raise the dead. We are called as Jesus followers to do the same ourselves as opportunity arises day by day. But you know... Jesus said there would be opposition. You will not be popular. If you step out in faith, you will not be popular. And sometimes what we, um, I think, allow to happen, I know in my life, is the fear of man can stop me from stepping out and doing some kingdom good um, to someone else or with someone else. And today we're looking at a parable, the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. We're looking at the meaning of the kingdom. So in Matthew chapter 13, there are actually seven parables, but the two that we're looking at today is the mustard seed and the leaven. The leaven, which are the yeast, which is mixed up with the dough that causes the bread to rise. There are three things that I want to draw out from these two parables alongside each other. And the first is this. The kingdom of God will never stop growing. It will never stop growing. It will never stop growing until the whole earth is filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Do you know some of the most famous and seemingly powerful kingdoms of this world have come and gone? Ancient Egypt, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Great Mongol Empire, the British Empire, and dare I say it, the American Empire, which I think is in collapse. These empires have risen and have declined, but there's one kingdom that will never decline, and that is the kingdom of God. Have a look at this little video sequence of the growth of the kingdom of God.
The kingdom of God started with one man who was born in a little stable. And when he grew up, he called 12 men to follow him. And as he started his ministry, that team expanded to 72. At his crucifixion, there were 120. When the Spirit fell at Pentecost, there were 120. Following Pentecost, there were 3,000 people that came into the, swept into the kingdom of God. And over the next few years, as Paul took the gospel throughout the whole of the Roman Empire, Christianity spread. It spread, it spread, and it spread. Over the last 2,000 years, Christianity has spread to every country, 195 countries in the world. It's not, of course, in every language, and that is our task. I worked out the other day that the Bible is translated into 3,384 languages, either complete scriptures, New Testaments, or just some scriptures. But there are still about 2,200 languages to go, and that is our task. Because really, the Word of God is one of the key ways of spreading the good news of Jesus. You know, if I gave a Bible to my neighbor and they accepted it, the Word of God is in their house. And you never know when a person might turn to the Bible and read it. I'm going to tell you a fascinating story a little bit later. You know, Billy Graham, I think it was Billy Graham who said this, the best evangelist in the world is the written word of God, and the most effective form of world evangelization is the distribution of the scriptures. Uh, last night before I went to sleep, um, I opened up a little pamphlet that had been sent to us by the Bible Society, reading some stories of some Indian orphans that had been given a children's Bible. What wonderful stories of life change, of, of orphans who've suffered the most terrible things that, but have found life through Christ by reading the Word of God. The second thing I want to say about the Kingdom of God is that it is subversive. I love the picture, I love the picture of the yeast working through the dough. I really love that picture because yeast, um, when you spread it through the dough, it starts to live and it grows. And in fact, when you, I, I, I only learnt this by doing a study on this. When you cut bread open and you see all those little holes, that's because the yeast have formed these little bubbles. Did you know that? Yeah, you all knew that because you're all cooks, you see. I must admit, I'm not a very good cook. Once I offered uh, to cook the family um, a self-sourcing chocolate pudding. Um, and I refused um, any help to do it. And instead of putting one teaspoon of baking soda in, I put a tablespoon of baking soda, and the pudding was an absolute disaster. When I first went flatting in New Zealand, when I came over here from Rhodesia, it was then, I was in a flat, and um, there were eight of us in this flat, and we all had a night to cook, and everybody had one night off a week. And my first night, I was asked to cook meatballs. And I cooked one meatball. It was completely burnt on the outside and completely raw on the inside. And the, um, the girls in the flat said, we will help you with the meal next time, Lorne. <laughs> you know, the thing about the kingdom of God and yeast is it grows and it grows and it grows. It keeps growing. Um, and the thing I like about it is that when Jesus told that parable, 
the lady wasn't just making a loaf of bread for her family, she was actually making probably the equivalent to 12 to 14 loaves of bread. And the, the thing that I got out of that is the kingdom of God's not stingy. It's not mean. It's generous. And one of the ways I believe that we can, as Christians, can um, witness to the world is by being incredibly generous with our possessions and our money. Just being generous. You know, 11 out of um, Jesus' parables, 39 parables, had money in them. And money talks, doesn't it? You know, you know, you can't look at my accounts. It's my money. You know, we're very private about money. But actually, Jesus was incredibly generous. When he ever had any money, he kind of gave it away. And um, I think one of the ways that we can witness as Christians is by being incredibly generous to people. Um, I heard about a guy called Robert F. Smith. Now, now he's a billionaire. He's the guy on the left there. And, and, and he was asked to give a graduation speech to 400 students of Morehouse College in Alabama at their graduation. During his speech, completely unprompted, unknown by his um, organization and unknown by the president of the university, he said, I am going, me and my family today are going to cancel all your student debts. We're going to pay them all. $40 million worth of debts. And there's some of the students um, smiling and shouting because their debts had been completely wiped away. Of course, if you were a billionaire, you would say, well, it's easy for me, I'd do that. But I, you remember the story um, during lockdown, I talked about this other lady on the right-hand side, Olia McCarty. Olia McCarty was a, um, a washerwoman who left school at the age of 16 to look after her family, and all she did throughout her life was wash clothes and iron clothes for people in the community. And at the age of 87, she retired because her hands were so arthritic she couldn't iron anymore. But she had stashed away the money from her earnings into a bank account, and she was trying to get her life organised um, because she was dying. She had no family. Um, so she went into the bank and she told the bank, I want you to write a check out for $115,000, which is almost her entire savings, and give it to the local university. I want to set up a scholarship there. They'd never heard of her name before. Now, when the businessmen of her town heard about what she'd done, 600 businessmen started to donate to that scholarship. That was the kingdom of God growing. It was witnessing to the world. And actually, TV mogul Ted Turner when he heard about this, this is what he did. He gave away a billion dollars to charity, and this is what he said. He said, if that little woman can give away everything she has, then I can give a billion. And he gave away a billion dollars. Closer to home, during lockdown, no names mentioned, when I was ringing round, um, there was a person in our congregation who um, was a, probably in the process of discarding her car because she couldn't afford to fix it. Um, and I sort of took this on board and um, thought, you know, what can we do to help? But anyway, as I was ringing around people, I, I came across another person in the congregation um, who um, I, I thought would possibly be able to help fix the car. But anyway, cut a long story short, um, this particular person um, didn't fix the car but gave me some money to take to the other person to say, look, please, would you get the car fixed? 
it was a significant amount of money. What I'm saying is, the kingdom of God is subversive. It works quietly. It works its way into the community. It works to bless people. It works to spread good news. And that's how we should be as Christians. We should be spreading the good news by being generous. Maybe next time you're walking through the supermarket and you see somebody's, maybe he doesn't look so wealthy, why don't you offer to just pay for their groceries? They'd say, why are you doing that? God bless you, my friend. Finally, the third thing I want to talk about is that the kingdom of God is very transformative. Yeast transforms dough into beautiful bread. A small mustard seed can transform into a huge tree. So the kingdom of God's love can transform our human hearts and can radiate out love and peace. Some of you may remember in the 1970s a man called David Richard Berkowitz. He was known as the son of Sam. He was the New York um, killer. He killed six people with a gun, with a .44 caliber pistol. He wounded some others. And he also lit a whole lot of fires around the city. Um, and he had the police on a merry chase. He was, the, he was the stalker, if you like, of New York. Anyway, he was captured. And he um, admitted uh, to his deeds, and he was given six consecutive prison sentences. That's, I think, 150 years. He was given 150 years in prison, never to be let out. Ten years into his sentence, in 1987, there was a guy called Rick who was in the prison with him, and he noticed that um, Berkowitz was incredibly depressed and glum, and he said to him, David, read the Psalms. And he got a Bible, and he started to read the Psalms. Um, and one night, he was reading Psalm 34, and as he read this word, God spoke to him. The word was, this poor man cried out. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Berkowitz started to cry, this tough killer. He turned off his cell light, so he writes, so that other inmates couldn't see him. And this is what he writes. I got down off my bunk like a little kid in the dark. I said, Jesus, God, I don't know who you are. I don't even know if you have any interest in me whatsoever. I don't know if you hate me or what. But I just want you to know how sorry I am for all the things that I've done wrong. How I've hurt so many people. How I've hurt my family. I just cried and cried and cried. A few days later, he told Rick what had happened to him, and Rick jumped for joy. He said, you don't understand what's happened. Take my word for it. Your life will never be the same again. And it wasn't. The yeast of God's word, the yeast of the kingdom of God had entered his heart. This mustard seed had entered his heart, and he was starting to change. He started to go to chapel, he actually has a very unusual list of people that he prays for every day. He prays for youths in gangs in New York. He prays for Native Americans, and he prays for an enclave of persecuted Jews in Tunisia. 
One day he wrote this. No one can go back and fix things. You know, you can ask for forgiveness and you can do as much as you can to try and have reconciliation with people. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But the Lord wants us going forward with thankful hearts. You know, I feel that I've got a thankful heart because God has had mercy on me. My situation could be a lot worse. Berkowitz now actually works as a clerk for the prison chaplain. He cleans up the chapel uh, before worship services and fills out any paperwork that needs to be done. Do you know that he's entitled to parole hearings, but he's refused to go to them once he wrote to the, um, the, the New York governor, George Pataki, about his parole hearings, and this is what he said. He said, in all honesty, governor, I believe that I deserve to be in prison for the rest of my life. I have, with God's help, long ago come to terms with my situation and I've accepted my punishment. The kingdom of God was like yeast, was like a mustard seed growing in his life, changing dough into beautiful bread, changing a hardened heart into a beautiful son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these stories that you tell us and the insights that you have for us. Thank you that your kingdom will never fail. It will always grow and keep growing until you return. Thank you that it works quietly, subversively, often in society, changing lives from house to house, from door to door, from person to person. Thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is transformative. It's changed my life and is changing my life. And it's changing my friends' lives here too. We thank you for the stories that we hear of life change when your gospel of love is received by a human being. Lord, may we be bearers of your kingdom as we go out into the world and share your love. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.